I love the presence of the Lord. He inhabits the praises of his people. Get rid of my gum. I learned that long ago. Don't chew gum and talk. I can't do both at the same time. You know, as I was thinking about and preparing for this Easter Sunday, I read the Easter story quite a bit and looked at it from many different angles. And uh, this is what I've come up with. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, I'd like to begin there. back up to uh, chapter 12, verse 1, and read. It says, uh, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of joy, of the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. In this scripture is the message of Easter. It encompasses the life, the purpose, the death, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. But the thing that stood out to me that I had to really dwell on is it said, for the joy that was set before him, he endured these things. And I'm troubled by that as I look at it and going, I don't know what would kind of joy would compel somebody that way. What would be so compelling I mean, what were they, what was he looking at? What was the joy that was causing him to say, I will endure the shame. I will endure the, the burden and I will endure the cross because of the joy. I've never experienced that. I've experienced joy. I experienced the joy of my salvation and what he did. But I don't know that I've experienced a joy that would compel me to do that. I think the only persons that maybe even come close to that is maybe a mother who's already given birth once and realizes the pain that's involved, but also the joy that comes from that. Maybe they get a gl glimpse of that, like, I'll endure this because of the joy that I know. As a father, I'm like, yeah, it was easy. We had a kid. Well, that's great. Isn't he beautiful? You know, isn't she lovely? Um, <clears throat> but it's difficult to comprehend, yet it says here that's exactly what he did. Something in him gave him such joy that he says, I'm willing. 
I'm willing, Father, to fulfill what's necessary. I'm willing to endure the cross. I'm willing to bear the shame of a criminal's death that he did not deserve, carry a burden that he didn't have to carry. The cross and the resurrection is about getting the big picture. I believe Jesus had the big picture at heart. When I was growing up in Southern California, we had uh, driver's training, driver's ed it was called, and you could get out of your regular class for five weeks <clears throat> to take driver's training. I, I took it in the 10th grade, the 11th grade, and the 12th grade. I drove myself to school all those times. I already had my license, but I took driver's ed. You got five weeks out of your regular class, and you got to go to driver's ed, and it was a good place to meet girls. But uh, one of the things that they continually spoke to you about was get the big picture. Get the big picture. And it took me a little bit to understand that. I was uh, teaching my own kids how to drive. And I, I can't, I don't know, I must have taught a half a dozen other young folks in this church how to drive a stick shift Toyota pickup in this parking lot out here over the years. One of them almost went down over the bank. But to talk about, no, you got to get the big picture. Don't be focused on the very front of just that. There's more to life than just that moment ahead of you. God had the big picture in mind. Isaiah 53, turn there if you will, in either your Bibles or your your phones. You know, I was thinking about this. I'm going to talk about it in a minute. That the time of Jesus is much like the time today. The world is still full of turmoil. The only difference is, is you can Google it. <laughs> Isaiah 53. In verse 5, well, let's back up a little bit. In verse 3, he was despised and rejected by others. This speaking of Jesus. He was despised and rejected by others. A man of suffering, acquainted with infirmity, or acquainted with grief. And as one from whom others hide their faces, he was despised and we held him of no account. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases, yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the punishment that made us whole. And by his bruises we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I heard the message many times growing up. God loves you. And I'd be like, 
Okay. God loves everybody. No, he loves you. Yeah, well, okay. But he loves everybody. I'm not anything special. Never considered myself anything special. That, uh, that God's love would be specifically for me. It was just a, a broad sweep. You know, God loves everybody. And one day somebody said, no, he specifically loves you. And I said, well, God doesn't have very good taste. He's not very sophisticated in his tastes. Picasso, it's said of Picasso, we were recently in Italy and, and, uh, and we saw different paintings and artists and stuff. And there was a little saying, and I, I clipped a picture of it. Not supposed to, but I did. Uh, I didn't do it disobediently. I didn't know you weren't supposed to take pictures until after I left. And everybody said you're not supposed to take pictures. Somehow I missed those signs. But I saw this one. Picasso said, good taste is the enemy of great art. I'm glad that God is not sophisticated in his choice of art. He's not sophisticated in his taste. But he is blown away by you. He's completely blown away by you. And for that reason, that joy that was in his heart, he was willing to endure the shame and the burden and the cross. I think God's more of a wild man than he is a sophisticated man, to be honest. In John chapter 1, verse 29, when uh, Jesus is coming down to the waters and uh, uh, John sees him, sees Jesus coming down to the water. He says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I love that. He took my sin. He took the sin of the world. The very theme of the cross and the resurrection can be summed up, I believe, in one statement. Forgiveness. The theme of the Gospels, the theme of the Bible, is the forgiveness of God. That God wants to redeem all mankind to Himself. And He is a God that forgives. The theme of the Lord's Prayer in the book of Matthew in chapter 6, the very theme of it, he, he says, pray in this manner, pray in this way. But as you go down through the prayer, it says, Father, forgive me my sin as I forgive others who have sinned against me. 
That's a major theme. And he goes on to teach at the end of that prayer. He says, for if you do not forgive, your Father in heaven cannot forgive you. I tell you, as Christians, forgiveness is a huge thing. Forgiveness is vital. Forgiveness is so important. Uh, how do we forgive when somebody has hurt us and they don't know it? You just do it. You forgive them. You live in that way. Well, what about tough love? What about somebody that needs tough love in their life? Well, tough love and forgiveness are completely two different things. Tough love is like this. In college, I wasn't the smartest guy in the class. I was at a party, and the cops raided it, and we all fled. And one of the cops yelled, stop, and I did. And so I got to spend the night in jail, and I got to call my dad, and I got to say, Dad, I'm in jail. Can you come get me out? And my dad says, son, I love you, but you found a way to get in there. You find a way to get out. Now, eventually, he came down with my checkbook, gave it to me. And I got to write a, a, a check to the bail bondsman. I got out. You know, tough love and forgiveness. How do you hold those two things together? You don't. One is one. The other is a mandate. A mandate is forgiveness. A mandate is he went to the cross that we could experience that forgiveness. And we could be forgiven. In fact, on the cross, in Luke 23, verse 34, Jesus said on the cross, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. So apparently, we're to forgive people that don't even know what they've done. He's showing us the way. He's showing you the way. I can't imagine, we, we live in a really great nation, greatest nation on the face of the earth. The climate's changing, but we still live in a time where we do not experience direct persecution like so many Christians throughout the earth do. And yet I believe they're faced with the same thing at their time of persecution. Forgive them. Forgive them. Why did Jesus say forgive them when he was on the cross? I mean, Jesus looked down from the cross upon a scene that must have been completely distressing to him. As he looks down from the cross, he sees Roman soldiers gambling for his clothes. We see that in John chapter 19. They were casting lots for his, his clothing. 
the criminals on the crosses next to him. In Matthew 27, it says they were reviling him. The religious leaders were mocking him. Oh, you say you're God? Well, save yourself. You've saved others, now save yourself. You can't even save yourself. And the crowd that had followed him one day before and had seen healings and seen miracles and seen people fed, thousands fed with a few fish and a few loaves of bread. And uh, now they're blaspheming him, spitting on him. And here Jesus is surrounded by this most unworthy group. What we would consider an unworthy group. Somehow a joy that was set before him caused him to see beyond that. And he said, forgive them, Father. The merciful heart of God. The merciful heart of God. We're living in a time of great turmoil, a lot like the time of Jesus, as I said. Uh, It was tumultuous then, political, religious, secularism. Um, And yet, there was haters. There was um, just all manner of evil in men's hearts being displayed. At that time, much like today, I I saw an article this past week where Vice President uh, Pence is speaking at a Christian university for their graduation, and the students protesting, saying, well, he doesn't represent my Jesus. I think the best way for us to represent The Jesus, the Lord Jesus, is to be a people who know how to walk in a place of forgiveness. Forgiveness begins to change things. Forgiveness can change an atmosphere. It's amazing how forgiveness can change an atmosphere. Uh, We see uh, the Roman soldier, the centurion at the foot of the cross, who had probably been doing what Romans do. I mean, they did not look at Jesus as a holy man. Their job was to brutally crucify criminals. That was just all they were doing. They, They beat him. They put a crown of thorns upon him. They took his, his clothes from him. They uh, uh, mocked him. All the things, they plucked out his beard, just yanked it out. All the things that just went natural for them to do. I mean, they weren't like setting Jesus apart going, well, you say this, so we're going to be extra mean and brutal to you. No, they were mean and brutal people. That was just a common way of dealing with criminals. And yet, here's the centurion at the foot of Jesus. And hearing what Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. 
And in Mark 15, verse 39, we see his comment. He says, the atmosphere changes. Surely this man was the Son of God. What about the atmosphere of your life? At one point in time, the atmosphere of my life was running from the cops, but being stupid enough to stop when they told me to. The atmosphere of my life was just not all that good. And all of a sudden, I came to this point where Jesus, the revelation of Jesus Christ came into my heart and came into my life. And I suddenly said, surely he is the son of God. And I begin to learn a new way. I learned the way of His way, forgiveness. Now, it's been a process. Walking with Jesus is a process. I, I wished it was like suddenly just done. You know, we see the four Gospels in the Bible. We've got the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But I want to say there's more Gospels than that. There's hundreds of Gospels, thousands of Gospels, millions of Gospels out there. Now, before somebody yells heretic, somebody else yells seize him, and somebody else yells get the torches, let me explain. Gospel is an old English word meaning God, meaning good, and spell meaning news, news story, a good news story. That's what gospel means. And it's an old English word that was put in, the, in here when this was written in the New Testament, the good news, the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But when I say there's more gospels being written, that gospel is you. The gospel is being written in you. You're a living testament of the good news of Jesus Christ. And however, you're writing that out in your life. Barry's over there going, yeah, I don't know, Mark, you're kind of pushing this. I'm like, well, let's hear the, the gospel according to Barry. The gospel according to Sandra. The gospel according to Mike there. Or Chris Bills. The gospel according to Chris Bills. Did you realize that there's a gospel according to you? There is. It's being written right now. A living testament of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. What's exciting about it is it's not overly sophisticated. You don't have to become real sophisticated to impress God. God's not impressed by your getting sophisticated. He's impressed. He's just blown away by you. And he's writing a gospel message in you to this world. We see the entire book of Acts is about that. They left off and they continued to bring forth the gospel according to each of their experiences. 
And it continues to this day. I like that idea. It changes me when I think, you know, I'm going from Mr. Frump on Tuesday, feeling like the gravitational pull of the earth has increased by 300%. Anybody my age can relate to that. I, uh, I think gravity went up. Get the moon back over here. Lift me up a little bit. Get the tides up. But uh, when I think of my life is a gospel message. It's not a, a message of rules. It's not a message of do's and don'ts. It's not a message of I'm good and you're not as good. Or God takes good people and makes them better. It's not that at all. It's a living testament that I carry within myself everywhere I go. That changes me. All of a sudden, my attitude will change. My uh, love for my neighbor will change. And my ability to forgive will change. Is that making sense, folks? So God is not impressed by sophistication. He's impressed because of you. He loves you. He's blown away by you. I don't understand it. Not you. I'm referring to myself there. Yeah. Well, maybe you. The good news being written today in you. It says this gospel will be preached in all the earth. I think sometimes we really fall short by taking a message that's not living. It's not alive. We're taking a message of something we've learned and we've heard about. That's not bad in itself, but it's not alive. What's alive is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What's alive is Jesus Christ in you, changing you, making you like him, and you desiring to become his disciple and to walk with him and to love him. Right? Thank you. My grandson's in agreement. I love that, being a disciple. A message that really spoke to me when I was a young Christian was to pray and ask God to make me a disciple. You know, at all costs, God, at all costs, make me a disciple. And then the message ended like this. And then confess to God your utter inability to be one. It's totally the fact that I allow Christ to live in me that makes me a disciple and that I'm willing to follow him, that I'm willing to say, yes, Lord, change me. Give me the right heart. Give me the right way. So the Easter message is summed up in that scripture. For the joy set before him, he was willing to endure the shame and he was willing to endure the cross. And we know that the end of the story 
is that he got victory because of that over death. I believe the gospel today needs a reset. Things have changed in our nation. The gospel today uh, is, is, it can't be preached the same as yesterday. You know, it used to be Billy Graham would hold a crusade. Thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands would turn out and they'd know what he was talking about. Today, when you talk to somebody, especially of the millennial group, do we have any millennials in here? If they weren't raised in church and they've been raised with uh, a lot of secularism in their, in their thinking, uh, they don't understand certain things. And that's okay. I'm not condemning that. What I'm saying is we see an example where Peter preached to 3,000, well, I don't know how many thousands of Jews, but 3,000 were saved in a day. And he used the Old Testament. He used the God that they understood. A lot of times today you say to somebody, God loves you, and they're like, which God? Which God? What God? Uh, you mean Thor? Um, how about uh, Allah? How about Jesus? Who are you talking about? You know, but we also see that Paul the apostle, when he was preaching the gospel to the to the Jews, he preached it one way. To the Greeks, who were secular in their thinking, they did not have the same understanding. He preached it differently to the Greeks, and I think the gospel reset that we need is not to get away from what the Bible says, but to understand you're the gospel being written and lived out today. Live your life for Jesus Christ today. And be that example of love and forgiveness in your life today. And you'll see your world around you changed. And you'll see your own life changed. Amen. Amen. There's always a lot of hope on Easter. It's a great time to re, uh, re-up your, your hope level. Say, yeah, there is hope. There is excitement in Jesus. But it's an everyday thing when you've discovered it. It's not a once a year thing. It's an everyday thing when you've discovered it. Amen. We're going to close with a song. Let's do a little worship. Uh, I'd like to announce that in just a couple of weeks, we're going to have a baptism. Terry, do you mind if I pick on you a little bit? Our sister Terry wants to be baptized. And uh, so we're going to, hopefully the ice will be out on the lake. No, we'll bring our baptismal in and fill it with warm water. But if anybody else has a desire to be baptized that has not been baptized and would like to be baptized, Come and see me and talk to me about getting baptized. Amen. Let's all stand. I'd like to have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just come before you right now. Lord, we do ask, according to the...
prayer you've given us, a pattern of a prayer to follow. Forgive us, Lord, our debts. Forgive us our faults. Forgive us, Lord, the sins we've committed towards others. And we ask, Lord, that you forgive them and and we forgive those who've trespassed against us, Lord. Lord, we ask that that would be preeminent in our lives. That being a people walking in the forgiveness of God would be more of a sign to those than wearing little pendants or bumper stickers or having little sayings and cliches. But we'd be a living example of the gospel of forgiveness. The gospel of the love of God in our lives. We thank you, Father. We thank you, Jesus, that you saw the joy set before you. You saw us. And you endured the sufferings. You endured the cross. And you rose again on the third day in great victory. Hallelujah. We praise you this morning, Father. We give praise to your name now. In the name of Jesus. Let's close with a song.